Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Sandy Alsop, Managing Director of Alsop Helikites, a company that manufactures aerostats. Sandy, hello. Hi, Andy. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for making time to come on the podcast today. We might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? Um, I suppose someone who does things first. And how would you describe your leadership style? Uh, well, you see, this is quite interesting. When, you, when I was heard about this, you told me, um, I sent a note saying, do you want to do this? And I said to my wife, I said, ah, they want to do, do a leadership podcast with me. And she said, well, you have no particular leadership attributes compared to anyone else. And she looked in Wikipedia under leadership qualities. Mm-hmm. And there's about 10 there, apparently. And she looked at it and sort of gave it. Out of 10, I was going to sort of 5 out of 10, 4 out of 10, 6, 3, 2. Only one or two were there more than anyone else. So I don't think that there's any particular reason why I would be a leader any more than anybody else. I don't think mm-hmm. particularly, as I don't have all these qualities of leadership very high, I must not be a particularly outstanding leader in any way. I don't think so. Well, as an individual um, who have runs a business, things that are high up there. Well, as an individual who runs a business, you are in a, a position to influence people and to to manage people. Um, and of course, uh, you are running a, you're running a team, and of course, though that's made up of human beings, and they have their conflicts and their their uh, their issues at, at home. How do you resolve conflict within the workplace? Um. <laughs> You try and get people who work together um, nicely. It doesn't mean they're all the same. We have a sort of saying, is that I think the Beatles had it, is are you a Beatle? Do, do you sort of fit in the firm and are generally optimistic and happy and willing to do most things? And if you have those people, they tend to sort themselves out quite well. Um, and I've got a very, very good manager who does that. And he's probably better at it than I am because he's very, very good at that interpersonal relationship thing. And that's the trick is to get someone who's really good like that. Um, and the other side of things is that um, if there is a problem. But what you find is that people have problems in their personal life can affect their home life. And most people have great difficulty in coping with high stress at home and high stress at work. And you have to take that into account. And of course, it sounds as though uh, a harmonious workplace begins at recruitment. Um, where do you look for your uh, new staff and employees, or do they come to you? Well, we just we just um, look in the, um, the staff employment website, and then they come for interviews, or we talk to them on the phone, look at the resume, and say, it's normal stuff, there's no particular mm-hmm. um, thing. It's just that we're a very small company, so you can't offer a huge um, it's a promotional career path like you could if you were going to a large bank or something like that. So you have to find people who are happy to work in the local village as opposed to wanting to go to London or things like this. So it's a different set of people we need, but we need people who are versatile. Small businesses need versatile people. It's no good normally having someone who's too um, 
constrain what they want to do. It, it sooner or later causes a bit of friction, and also they you'll find that they, there's no work for them to do sometimes if they're very, very constrained in what they do. So most people are quite versatile and reasonable like this. Um, you know, it, yeah. So you just find people that want that, that are happy to work with you, like doing the job, make sure that they they feel happier coming to work than, than they would go in most other places. I think that's really the trick with it. So it sounds like it's very important for uh, staff in a small business to be able to wear many hats at the same time. Uh, would you say that's correct? You got to. Yeah. Anyone that says, oh, I don't want to do this, or everyone must be basically prepared to do what everyone else does pretty much, even if they can't do it so well. At least they would, the willingness would be there. You know, even if, it would, you know, obviously there's people that are more specialized in doing certain things. But, but if um, somebody was away or anything like this, people would be happy to try and cover for them. That's mm-hmm. the trick. Mm-hmm. Now, you work in a rather interesting field. Tell us about what aerostats actually are. Well, an aerostat is something that stays in the air. And um, generally, they're helium-filled. And some people's definition can be tethered or untethered. But ours are tethered. And most aerostats just use pure helium lift to cope with um, gravity. But the problem with that is when the wind hits and the wind pushes helium down quite well because Helium's not a great lifter. So the helicopters which we make, uh, they are the only thing in the world that the wind pushes up in a stable manner, as well as being lighter than air. So they're the only lighter than air kite in the world. And that means that they don't have to have nearly so much helium to stay up. Because if you've got no wind, helium works quite well. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the breeze comes along, it knocks the balloon down pretty quick, and the balloon is huge. And if you combine the two, then when the wind comes, it's not a problem. The wind pushes it up as well. And that has meant that we can um, make them commercially economic, which never they never really were before. Um, not all weather. You could have ones that would work in low winds, but a helicopter will fly in pretty much anything and yet still be small enough and cheap enough to run that your average person or university or small business or whatever can actually afford to keep them flying. Because the problem is... People think, if you want to keep things in the air, that the capital cost of the equipment is the main thing. It's not. The main problem with keeping things in the air is maintenance. Right. The maintenance is 90% of everything you and I will ever do. So you can put something in the air that's in a drone for 20 minutes, fine. You try that for three days. You know, you've gone through half a dozen drones by then. So it's, it's this ongoing, constant maintenance that kills most airborne platforms, which is what this is. We're probably 1% of the cost per hour of, let's say, most other airborne platforms. Uh, in a helicopter, it's three or 4,000 pounds an hour to keep hovering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We might get it down to 10 pounds an hour or 5 pounds an hour. Fantastic. Um, full-life cost. So that's the difference. Now, steering back uh, into the vein of leadership... If I was to ask you to objectively uh, to identify the greatest leader, living or dead, who would that be? The greatest leader, living or dead? Yes. Well, if I knocked on Churchill's door, which is probably about right. Mm-hmm. Um, because he wasn't, he was a very good leader, but he also had empathy for people, which is which is hard to get sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. So I think he's very good. But also, there's you've got to ask why you're doing it. 
I think that's the most important thing. There's probably great leaders who are absolute monsters. Of course. You probably think up lots yourself. They probably had great leadership skills. I mean, the Genghis Khan had great leadership skills. You could probably think an awful lot. So it's not whether you're a great leader or not. I think the most important thing is why you're doing it. The last thing you want is great leaders who are awful. So I think that's the most important thing, why you're doing it. And then if you've got a good reason for doing something, as I said, pretty much anyone can be a leader because I haven't got any particular leadership skills. All I've got is I'm quite good at looking at new things and combining various things in a new way and having um, you know, the interest in doing it and also taking the risk. There isn't any other particular leadership skills I've got over and over anybody else. So I don't think it's really, um, you don't have to be a special person to be a leader. You just have to have a good reason for doing it and enthusiasm in that direction and a, and a good bit of judgment. That's all. I, I think that's the most important thing, the why. And everyone goes on about the what. No. You don't want good leaders who are evil, do you? Absolutely right. I don't think so. Well, unfortunately, our time together is very quickly drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does next 12 months have in store for Alsop Helikites? Well, um, the Helikites we use at the moment for lifting equipment. We're lifting um, uh, cloud droplet measuring equipment across the Atlantic at the moment, mm-hmm. three or 4,000 feet. Um, we also lift equipment for um, uh, force protection. If you've got Say you've got uh, various groups attacking others, um, you can protect them. Um, the other thing is the radio communication, so 4G communications, we can lift those. Those are the three main things that are going on. So there's science, there's communications, um, and there is force protection. Those three things um, are what is going to be probably trending for us if it's such a ghastly word, isn't it? But the point is is that we can quite quickly implement 4G in certain places and we're cheap enough and easy enough for scientists to use as both on and off ships um, and not many other people can do those things really. So we've got quite a lot of um, uh, sort of opportunities in that direction at the moment which we're doing really. Well, Sandy, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, discussing leadership uh, with you. I very much look forward to speaking with you again at some point in the near future. Sandy, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Sandy Alsop, Managing Director of Alsop Helikites. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Sir Jeff Hurst, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did... Uh, score nothing for Essex, uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool many, many years ago, 1962 I think that was. 
So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He um, He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over the years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with, he'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. And what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, well, I do I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to 
to be involved with my career in those early days were two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, especially with South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years, he it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time... At, Maybe overly strict by the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and so I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into it because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Lee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that 
someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out, mm. out. So I never really felt people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again the leadership that I'll show you, you got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, "Oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch." So that—I've uh, had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke and make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, look, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want, you want, you've got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, 
when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we... You've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. But then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh if that put, day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps... Uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke, and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, um, well, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. Some of the outstanding. I think the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals, or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely, that's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely. Mm. You've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, 
and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, That's a good they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we we're successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back on an earlier earlier question for me, the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, Jeff, uh, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that, that that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, 
you may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my, mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.